0: Hey, good morning, church. Uh, I'm thankful that you're here this morning. We're uh, at Preen Lake Park again. We tried to find us a little nook to get out of the wind this morning, and uh, we are thankful that you're able to be here with us this morning. Uh, By the way, my name is Trent Whitley. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Sulphur Community Church, and I've got Sean here with me recording, so I'm not here by myself, uh, thankfully. Uh, So I'm just happy to be with y'all this morning, Uh, and... Tomorrow, when you hear this, I'll be listening to myself preach. I'm I'm not quite used to that yet. I'm not quite, you know. If if you want to if you want to experience something humbling, go ahead and listen to yourself uh, on a recording after you already do it. Maybe that's just me, but uh, it's it's really awkward sometimes for me to be able to see this. But uh, anyway, I'm thankful to be able to open the Word with you this morning. Thankful to be able to walk through, uh, to continue to walk through our series, the crushed head and the bruised heel, where we're where we're seeing God's Redemptive plan unfolding from Genesis all the way to revelation and we hope that you're enjoying being able to walk through this series with us we're hoping that you're that you're enjoying and anticipating the weeks to come uh, i've been able to spend a lot of time in the last few weeks between second Samuel where we were last week with King David and then uh, moving forward into first kings and second kings and uh, you know where we'll be today and so uh it's been a it 's been a really interesting time to be able to see what uh, what the lord's doing uh, through our congregation and through uh, and through this series and so it's interesting just to see how his plan unfolds for the nation of Israel how, how and what's really been interesting is, is to see how God through his, through his sovereignty and through his goodness uh, is bringing others, not just the people of Israel but is' bringing others outside of the nation of Israel in to Experience Him and to know Him and to cherish Him and to believe in Him, and we're going to see this today. I've seen it in Second Samuel, I've seen it in First Kings, and we're going to definitely see it today in Second Kings, chapter five, uh, in just a few minutes. And so I hope that you guys are enjoying this. And remember, there's uh, there's guides that are available for each of these. You go to our website sulfurcommunitychurch.com, and go to our resources tab. Uh, David and Joey have spent. A lot of time putting these guides together. And what these guides do is that they, uh, they help you to be able to dive deeper into the text for a greater understanding of the text. And then they ask some, some application questions to allow us to be able to examine ourselves. Uh, David says this all the time, if we're just studying the Word and becoming knowledgeable about what it says without actually applying it, then we're just becoming smarter sinners. And so I would hope that that's not the case. I hope that we're that we're applying this. The goal is is transformation when we hear the word of God. And so I pray that you would use these guides and that you would glean off of some of the work that uh, that these guys have put in because they've really done a good job with those. Uh, so let's get into the text. Uh, we'll be in 2 Kings chapter 5 today. And so if you want to turn in your Bibles with us, we'll be there in just a few minutes. And I'll, I'll try to bridge the gap a little bit for us. Uh, to know where we are in history when we get to 2 Kings chapter 5. And in order to do that, I kind of got to go back to where we were last week in uh, 2 Samuel with David. And so where we left off, we see the unlikely king of Israel, David, who is the good shepherd, the one who cares for his people, the one who governs his people as a good and faithful king. He is faithful to the Lord. But then we also see David... Turn from the Lord and sin against Him. He he sees this beautiful woman uh, as he's standing on his roof. He's on his roof. He sees this beautiful woman Bathsheba, and she's bathing on the roof. And so what he does, he becomes consumed by her. And so he brings her. Uh, he gets his guards to bring her to him. And uh, when when they do, he conceives a child with her. And so because of this, because he sees the things that he's done, he tries to cover it, and he tries to send her husband Uriah back to her. He brings him in from the battlefield and sends him back to her so that he can cover up what he's done. But Uriah says that he won't leave the king's service, and while people are battling in the field, he stays at the palace. He stays around and doesn't go to see his wife. And so David, seeing this and knowing that he, he's not going to be able to get away with this, sends him to the front lines, sends him to the front lines of battle, to the main battleground and tells the commanders that are around him to draw back from him so that he will surely die. So then he dies and then David is, is confronted by the prophet Nathan and, and David repents of his sins and turns back to the Lord and he is forgiven but it's at the expense of his son. The son that was born to Bathsheba, because of his iniquity, because of the things that he did wrong, dies. But through the mystery of God's will, and through God working things out through his servant David, another son, another son is born to Bathsheba, and that's Solomon. And so as David is, is getting older, there's this, there's this anticipation for this new king, this anticipation that's coming uh, for a new king to reign on the throne. And so Adonijah, seeing that, seeing that David is old, he tries to, to rally the troops together in Israel and set himself up as king in 1 Kings chapter 1. That's the account that we see. And, and then we see this, this really strange strange exchange between King David on his deathbed and Bathsheba and then Nathan, the prophet, who... Uh, originally went in to, to uh, confront David about his sin with Bathsheba. And so what we see is that Bathsheba goes in to David and, and, and she begs him to remember the promise that David has made to her to make Solomon the king, to make Solomon the king, not Adonijah, but Solomon. And so then Nathan comes in right afterwards and he affirms this. He affirms that this is supposed to happen. And so what's what's strange about this whole situation is that we don't really have any evidence in Scripture that this was something that she actually said, that this was something that was actually promised to her by David. So it leaves us wondering if Nathan and Bathsheba tricked the king, uh, if it was something that was actually actually communicated, or if they were just tricking him, or was Nathan just trying to to guilt David into remembering what he did to Bathsheba's husband and, and in return make her son the king. Maybe Nathan was trying to save himself from this, but nevertheless, either way, David promises to Bathsheba on that day that Solomon will become the next king. And so Solomon becomes king, and it says in 1 Kings chapter 3 that Solomon pleased the Lord, just as his father did. And so the Lord comes to Solomon in this dream, and he asks what Solomon desires from him. He says, look, if you can, if you can have anything, what do you desire from me, And so Solomon answers with a response that pleases the Lord. He didn't ask for riches or for honor or for this military dominance, but instead he asked for wisdom. Wisdom to be able to govern his people well, to care for his people like his father did. And so the Lord blesses him with that wisdom. And all the things that he didn't ask for as well, like riches and honor and wealth, and so Solomon's kingdom and his wisdom and his honor was like none other that anybody had ever seen before. And so Solomon uh, goes on to build the temple for the Lord that David wanted to build originally. David talked about this for a while. Now Solomon gets to fulfill that. And then there was wealth and peace in Israel more than ever before. There was, there was peace in the land. There was no war going on particularly at that time. And there was peace But then we see Solomon turn from the Lord. We see that he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Many of those wives turning his heart after their false gods. And even to the point where when these women would turn him away from their gods, he would actually make these high places of worship in Israel for their gods. He would build them altars and temples upon the mountains to where they could go and worship their gods. And so this this made the Lord angry. He was angered in the sight of the Lord because he and because he turned from the Lord, God raised up these these adversaries to wage war against Israel. Syria being one of them that we're going to see today in 2nd Kings chapter 5. And so from there we see God tearing the kingdom of Israel away from Solomon's descendants and causing the kingdom to be split into two. Now we have Israel on the one hand and Judah in the other. And so Solomon's uh, descendants, starting with Rehoboam, would rule over the tribe of Judah, and the rest of the kingdom would be taken over by others, Jeroboam being the first king that would that would take over Israel. And so from there, we see this long succession of kings in Israel and in Judah, who for the most part were, were evil in the sight of the Lord. They did evil in his sight. Besides uh, a few kings, Asa and Jehoshaphat, that we'll see today, uh, All of these kings were evil in the sight of the Lord. And so under these kings, Israel and Judah would continue to spiral downward and would turn from the Lord to other gods and would run after their own pleasures instead of seeking the things of the Lord. But at the same time, the Lord was raising up prophets to to speak to the people on behalf of the Lord, to perform miracles in the name of the Lord, and to confront these kings over their sin, to confront them over their idolatry among many other things. And so the main prophet being Elijah, who was was righteous in the sight of the Lord. And so we see the Lord do some pretty amazing things through Elijah through 1 Kings. In 1 Kings 18, he defeats the prophets of Baal, where God brings down fire and and proclaims that he is the the one true God, and that the God Baal is nothing but a, a fabricated God that doesn't hear his prophets, is not concerned about his people, but God is the one true God that you can trust in, that we can trust in. And he performs many other miracles during this time, many other things. And then we see in 2 Kings chapter 2 that Elijah is taken up into a whirlwind, into heaven, in front of his successor, Elisha. He's just taken up into heaven. He He doesn't die physically, but he is taken up into heaven to be with the Lord. And then Elijah passes the torch to Elisha. So Elisha is the one that's going to come in. Elisha is the one we're going to see in our text today. And so at the time of our text in Second Kings chapter 5, Jehoshaphat is the king of Judah. He's one of the few that actually walked in the ways of the Lord, that actually cared about what the Lord had to say. And then we see Jehoram is the king of Israel. He is an evil king. And the people of Israel are following in his footsteps, following in the, ways that he, in, in the things that he's doing, worshiping false gods and turning from the one true God. And so at the same time, the nation of Syria, uh, which is just to Israel's north, is, is building up and building up and building up. And so we see the, um, we see the army of Syria growing in the city of Damascus, and, and they're performing these raids on the nation of Israel where they'll, they'll go in really quickly Uh, make a trail, go in, plunder a city, and then come back with all of their goods and come back into Damascus, meet up, and then unify again. And so that's what's going on when we get to 2 Kings chapter 5. And Elisha is the main prophet in Israel at this time. Like I said, Elijah has has passed on uh, being a prophet to Elisha. And so as we get to the sermon text in 2 Kings chapter 5, we see two major contrasts within the text at first. We see uh, the first where uh, we see the generosity and the, and the kindness of the oppressed, uh, of this little servant girl that we're going to hear about in a few minutes. And then we see the pride of the powerful Naaman uh, that we're going to see um, here in just a few minutes when we're, when we're introduced to him. And so I'll read Second Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 3 again by the way, I appreciate Sean reading that this morning. I know that was a long passage. Um, so Naaman, commander of the army of, of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on, the, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my lord were the prophet? Were, would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria? He would cure him of his leprosy. And so we learn a few things about Naaman first. Right, first he is the he is the supreme commander of the army of Syria. Uh, king ben is the is the uh, king of Syria right now, and he's his right hand man. Uh, we learn that he's a great man. He's a man that's looked highly upon with, with this high social status. He's one that, if he went out into the city, would be well-liked and would be someone that would, uh, that would enjoy the company of other people. He was a mighty man of valor, which means two things. He, he's got lots of money, and he's got lots of courage to be able to fight. And then it also says that he was in favor with his master, in high favor with his master. And so the king loved this guy mainly because the Lord had given him victory. That's what we see here. And so you ask, why why had the Lord given victory to this Syrian guy, this guy that was not of the nation of Israel? And what we see is that most likely God was working through Naaman to judge Israel because of their unrighteousness, because of the things that they had been doing, because they had turned away from him. But in light of all these favorable things that we see, all of the good things, that we see about Naaman, we also see this one other issue, that Naaman had leprosy. Naaman had this skin disease that caused major ulcers and, and skin lesions, which would ultimately, which was ultimately uncurable and would lead to death. And so through all of his success, Naaman is dealing with this inevitable end, this inevitable thing that's coming due to this disease. And so then we see the servant girl. We were introduced to a new character, the servant girl. And when we, and we see what she did. We see that she, that she gave advice to her master to be able to go to Naaman and to care for him. And when we see what, we, what she did, we have to remember who she is. We have to remember what happened to her. The text says that Naaman picked her up in one of his raids. She was from Israel. And so when Naaman took her to be his wife's servant, it probably happened right after he took out her whole town, right after he killed her family, and right after he took her away from everything that she had ever known. And so when the Syrians came into a town, they, weren't, they were only interested in two things. They were interested in destroying the people and taking their goods. And so that's what, that's what happened to this little girl. This little girl is taken to a faraway land and forced into servitude. If anything, she should be vengeful, she should be bitter, she should be angry. She should seek for Naaman to die for the situation that she had to endure. She should live out her days anticipating his death, especially since she knows that he's got leprosy. She knows that he doesn't have much time left. She should be living that out, anticipating that. But instead, she seeks for Naaman's good. She seeks for the good of him. She tells Naaman's wife about the prophet Elisha in Samaria, who she knows could heal him. Instead of bitterness, we see this overwhelming kindness. Instead of vengeance, there's this overflow of mercy. Instead of repaying evil for evil, she decides to act in love toward her oppressor, toward the one that stole her away from her home. So Naaman heeds her advice. We start to see his character kind of unfold as we see the pride of this powerful man, the pride of the powerful. Uh, Let's read uh, starting in verse 4. Let's see in verse 4. It says, So Naaman went in and told his lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Israel said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of leprosy. And when the king of Israel read this letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. And so he goes to the king of Syria, and the king of Syria is like, I got you, bro, and he does what kings do. He tries to negotiate Naaman into better health. He tries to do everything that he can in his power to use his influence to give Naaman better health. So he doesn't take advice from the girl immediately to send him directly to the prophet. Instead, he sends a letter to the king of Israel and sends Naaman over with a bunch of gifts. He sa- "It says The text says he sends him over with 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. That's a lot of stuff. That is a lot of riches. So understand what he's trying to do here. He's going to buy himself back into good health. He's going to put himself back into good health. He's going to purchase the favor of the prophet or the king to get whatever he needs. He thinks that this blessing is just something that can be ball this blessing is something that that he deserves that he that he should get and he thinks that when he presents himself to the king he's going to give him some stuff and the king should just humble himself and hurry up and heal him and send him back on his way it's funny uh the last couple of weeks you know we've been watching a lot of disney plus just like everybody else and we've been watching beauty and the beast over and over with ellie because she loves that show and this guy just reminds me of Gaston, so much, if you know who I'm talking about. He's this burly man. He's the best at everything that he does in his little town, and everybody is just in love with him, and he thinks he runs the place. That's the picture that I get when I see Naaman. Naaman just thinks that he owns this thing, he thinks that he completely runs the place. And so when he approaches the king of Israel, the king tears his clothes in sorrow. Remember, he has been getting raided by Syria. He's been, he's been getting plundered by Syria. His cities are being taken over by them. And he knows he has absolutely no power to heal this man. Only God can heal this man, and this king knows that. And he knows that when he can't heal him, when he can't do the things that he's supposed to do, that it's going to really irritate Syria, that the heat's about to be turned up because of what's about to happen. And he thinks the king of Syria is just looking for another excuse to attack him again. And he doesn't want that to be put on him or his people. But then Elisha comes in. And Elisha comes to the king uh, when he hears about these things. Let's read, uh, verses, let's read verses 8 through 14 really quickly. Starting in verse 8, it says, But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there's a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that... I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not, are not Abana and Farper, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? He has actually said to you, Wash and be clean. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a child, and he was clean. So Elisha goes to the king when he hears about this. He says, Look, don't worry about this. Let him come to me that he may know that there is a prophet. In Israel, and what Elisha's saying when he's when he's saying this, remember Elisha speaks on behalf of God for the people. So when he says that his purpose is for Naaman to know that there's a prophet in Israel, it's basically the same thing as saying uh, as saying because of what is about to happen, he's going to know that there is a God in Israel, that there is the one true God of Israel, is the only God. And so this is the same thing that God has been doing since the beginning, right? He's been revealing himself over and over again and allowing people to be able to see his might and to see his glory, to see how strong he is, to see how good he is. And so Naaman goes to Elisha. He's got his horses and his chariots and all the gifts that he brought with him. He's got this entourage. Can you imagine him walking through the city with all of this stuff? And he rolls into this town like, look at me. Look at what I'm doing. Look at what's going on here. And apparently Elisha is not very impressed, to be honest. He doesn't even go to the door to meet him. He sends his servant to the door to meet him. And so this guy with all those riches and all this stuff makes this huge procession through town. And Elisha's like, so what? He sends his servant out there to meet him. He doesn't even go out there and meet him. And so his servant gives him some pretty simple instructions, right? It says, wash in the Jordan River seven times, and you'll be clean of leprosy. That's it. Wash in the Jordan seven times, and this skin disease that you have, this terrible disease, will be gone. But Naaman's pride won't let him follow these simple instructions. It won't, his pride will not let him do these simple things. And he's thinking, this prophet won't even come out to me. What's wrong with him? I am Naaman. I am ruler of the army of Syria. Why is this person refusing to come out to me, refusing to to bow down to me, and to come to me and to meet me? And I can't help but think about this. I'm sorry, Dad. I'm sorry uh, from the beginning. I got to let you know that. Uh, but I have to tell this story. It, it's so funny. It uh, it reminds me of when I was a little kid and I played. Uh, we played Little Dribblers. And so if you don't know, my parents uh, have, have been around Westlake for a while, the Westlake community, and they're, uh, they're pretty big parts of the, of the community. And, and so uh, anyway, my, uh, one day we're, I'm playing Little Dribblers basketball, and I have a friend whose parents actually didn't come to pick him up that day, and my dad was our coach. So uh, my dad puts him in the truck and, and is going to bring him home. And so, uh, as he's going through Westlake on Houston River Road, as he takes the curve right there, he's going a little too fast. And so, a cop uh, pulls up behind him. And a cop, uh, the cop is new in Westlake. He's he's not familiar with the police officer that comes out of her her car. And so she walks up to the window and she says, "Hey, sir, uh, do you know why I stopped you?" And he said, uh, "So yeah, I may I may have been going a little fast." She said, "Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna." I'm gonna write you a citation for that. And so, what my dad was trying to say was, "Hey, look, I've I've been in this community for a long time. I'm trying to serve this community. I'm bringing this kid home. Like, it's it's after basketball practice. We've been having a three-hour basketball practice. Look, I, I was just going a little fast. Why don't you let me off? That's what he was trying to say. But what he said was completely different. What he said." was, ma'am, do you know who I am? Like somebody was supposed to know who he was. Like he had this authority that came out based on who he was. And dad, I'm sorry, I know that's not what you meant, but it's just hilarious. And I couldn't help but think about that when this happened. But that's the attitude that we see from Naaman, right? Like, do you know who I am? You should be thankful that I even graced your presence. You should be thankful that I'm even here with you and you should come out and bless me now. And so Naaman wanted this ceremony of sorts, to give him, to give him some honor as he was being healed, to, to be honored. He wanted, he, he, wanted to, he wanted Elijah to pass his hands over him, and he wanted to be this really cool thing. So then we see uh, the second major contrast, uh, God's grace resulting in, in non-Israelite belief, and God's destruction of the Israelites for non belief. And so that's what we'll see as we as we go on into our into our text. First of all, we see God's grace resulting in belief for the non-Israelites. So so God's grace comes first through the persuasion of of Naaman's servants, through the persuasion of his servants. The servants are like, dude, look, you have this deadly disease. You gathered all this wealth. You got a letter from the king of from You got a letter from the king, and you came over here. Now you're not going to do the simplest thing that he's asking you to do. All you have to do is go and wade in the Jordan River. All you have to do is go and bathe in it. All you have to do is wash yourself seven times, and you'll be cleansed of this disease. But it wasn't that simple, was it? While others could only see the, the outside symptoms of his skin falling apart, God could see the deeper deadness of his heart. God could see something much more dangerous and more deadly than his skin disease, than leprosy. God could see his pride. And so, for those of us who are prideful, which is all of us at times, at least, we know how deadly this is. We know how deadly pride can be. And so, in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, it tells us that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. James 4 6 says that God opposes the proud but gives grace. To the humble. So we can speak from from experience that a that a heart full of pride has no room for the worship of God. It has no room to worship Him. And so we can easily be become consumed with ourselves. And America is, is sitting right there just waiting to feed us the life that we need to constantly promote ourselves, that we need to increase ourselves, even if it's at the expense of others. But thankfully, by his grace. God gives us the freedom. God gives us a freedom from that way of living. He doesn't allow us to live in that. And so we see his grace here extending to Naaman in this text through his servants. God miraculously grips him and changes his mind about the whole whole situation through the reasoning of these second-class citizens, these people that were considered as nothing. Praise God for using the meek to humble the proud. And because God worked through Naaman's servants and and penetrated his heart, the text tells us that he willfully obeys the commands of Elisha through his servant. And so what we see is that Naaman's flesh is restored, that he's he's clean, that God heals the outer sickness. But we see the evidence that Naaman, uh, at the same time that he received this outward cleansing, has also been renewed within his heart and that he believes upon God. So let's read Second chapter five uh, verses 15 through 18. It says then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him, and he said, "Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. But he said, "As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none." And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Ramon. When I bow myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And so we see his confession first. We see Naaman's confession of his faith. He says, Behold, listen up. I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. And this is interesting because it contrasts a lot of the things that the Israelites are believing at this time. They're worshiping other gods. They're doing other things. But Naaman here, this non-Israelite, this guy who's a persecutor of Israelites, is the one that comes in and says, I know that there is one God in Israel and that there is one God on this earth. And so reading in context, my opinion is that his tune even changes about all the stuff that he has, all the things that he brought with him. He's no longer trying to give these things in exchange for something, but he sees what's happened to him. He sees what's what's been done for him, and out of gratefulness and graciousness, he decides to give it all away. He's resolved to give it to Elisha. But of course, Elisha won't take it. Because God did the work, not Elisha. And Elisha is pretty clear about that. And we're going to see a contrast between him and his servant in just a second when his servant tries to go after those riches. But Elisha is not concerned about that. He realizes that he's just God's messenger. that that, That he's a man walking in the ways of the Lord. But he did not do this healing. And so Naaman's belief is in the one true God of Israel. And that belief causes him to cast down all of his other gods. He says, look, I'm going to need to be pardoned for this, for this one thing. The, the, king, the king of Syria still worships another god, right? I have to serve him. I have to go into the temple with him. I have to do those things with him. But from now on, I'm only offering sacrifices and burnt offerings to the Lord. The Lord, the God of Israel, is now my God. And so he even asked him to bring home earth from the place of God so that he can build an altar to God with it, so that he can build an altar in the place that he is and worship him. And based on the evidence we see here, I believe that we can say that God healed Naaman not only of his outward leprosy, but also he brought to life Naaman's inner self. He brought to life his heart. By God's grace, through faith in him and through faith in his promises, Naaman believed. Naaman believed in the Lord, and it showed in outward signs through his humbling himself to wash in the water and his profession of faith in the Lord. And so I hope through these stories and, and, and through these narratives that we see in the Old Testament that you're, that you're starting to, to see these small foreshadowings of what is to come in the New Testament when we break into the time of Christ I hope that when you see this servant girl, that it makes you think of someone who is abundantly gracious. I hope that it would make you think of someone who would, who would follow his own commands perfectly. When he said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, he says, You have heard that it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. I hope that today that you see Jesus of Nazareth, who lived his life as a suffering servant, who came to serve and not to be served, Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. I hope you see the one who not only sacrificed his time, sacrificed his resources, and any small wealth that he had on this earth, discipling others, but also paid the ultimate for ultimate price, offered the ultimate sacrifice by willfully going to the cross to be our substitute in death. We deserve death. We deserve destruction, but Christ died in our place. So one of the main things that I remember from us walking through the book of John a couple of years ago is how direct Jesus was in correcting the thinking that his life was in anyone else's hands but his own. John chapter 10, verse 18, when Jesus is is talking about his life, he says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. And so Jesus is is showing us that he willingly and purposefully laid down his life for those who openly despised him, so that he may bring many sons to glory. Praise God for that. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. And praise God that through the blood of Jesus, that He draws proud people like Naaman, and like you, and like me, He draws us to Himself. That people who were dead in our trespasses, who were of no benefit to God whatsoever, were made alive with Christ. That He raised us up, and that He seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And that in the coming ages, that He might show us the incomparable riches of His kindness expressed to us in Christ. Do you hear that today, church? When we have faith in Him, when we, have, when we trust in Him, this is what He does to us. He has raised us up. And He loves us. We praise Him that when we are still prideful, after we've tasted this goodness of salvation, after we've seen what He's done on our behalf, when we're still prideful, when we still say things that we shouldn't, and when we still do things out of pride, that he loves us, and that he's sanctifying us. He promises that he's he's drawing us and and making us more like himself every day. He deals with us gently, and he teaches us to depend on him rather than on ourselves. I wish that we could just stop thinking about, about pride like it's just one of our little vices, one of these little things that that comes and goes and that's not really that big of a deal, I wish that we could stop thinking of pride that way and I wish that we could see it in the much deeper context that Scripture gives us. When Jesus gives the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18, He relates our humility, the opposite of pride, our, our humility, He relates that very closely to our understanding of justification, just how we are made right before God, how we are justified before Him. The Pharisee comes in, He's praying in the temple, and he, he compares himself to all these other men, and he boasts about his fasting and his tithing practices and all of the things that he does because this is what he believed saved him. And, and it surfaced as, as pride in himself through this awful prayer that we hear. But then the tax collector, we see him next, and he stood far off. He beat his breast, and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God is the one who justifies here. God is the one who is merciful to Him. That is the only way. We need a way to be made righteous before Him, and God made that way through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we can't possibly be proud when we live with that understanding. We can't possibly have pride come out of us when we truly understand what that means. And, oh, church, if we could just see how how destructive pride is in in even our little small circles and even the small things that we do every day. Of of course, pride looks like constantly boasting about yourself. That's what people mostly think of when they think of pride, people talking about themselves. And sure, it looks that way, but also it shows itself in many other ways. It shows itself in, in an unwillingness to be able to ask for help when you need it. I'm guilty. I think a lot of people are guilty through this coronavirus situation. I mean... We know plenty of people around our, around our neighborhood and in our area that could help us out with certain situations. We had a dryer go out the day after coronavirus stuff started and we were in lockdown. But instead of asking for help and instead of uh, taking, taking other people up on their offers for us to, uh, to care for us and to love, uh, to love on us, we just decided to do it ourselves because we want to be self-sufficient. We want to think that we have it all together and that we can do things on our own. That's just a small example, but you, you see where I'm going here. Pride rears its head when, like Naaman, some of us, uh, somebody tries to give us wise counsel, but we can't hear that. We can't hear wise counsel. We can't understand wise counsel because we can't possibly be wrong. Do you know anybody like that? Are you this way? And even more subtly, we have to ask ourselves the questions. Can you take constructive criticism and not get your feelings hurt? Can somebody tell you something that is good for your soul, that is good for you, even if it rubs you the wrong way, and you be okay with that? And on the other end of it, can you take a compliment without your head just swelling so large that you can't even get out the door? Can we do that without being prideful? Can you willingly expose yourself to people on a weekly basis that are going to encourage you, but will also often tell you things that you don't want to hear that are for your benefit? Can you do that? A heart that is proud, a heart that has pride, a heart that, a heart that seeks pridefulness is not going to want that, is not going to want that type of community. Pride has a way of making us want to isolate ourselves from those situations, making us want to to turn away from those situations and to just trust in ourselves. But I pray that the Lord would sanctify us, that He would drive out the pride that entangles us individually and as a church and allow us to be able to trust in Him. And So I want you to see another amazing thing through this account of Naaman. Another really awesome thing that we see. As I said earlier, Naaman is not an Israelite. In fact, he's been actively at war against the Israelites. He has been the one plundering their cities and taking over the things that are going on. And God, in His mercy and in His goodness, is revealing Himself to Naaman, a pagan, false god-worshipping, Israelite killer. This just shows God's, God's graciousness his patience, and his global purpose in salvation. I don't want you to miss this. Just like he promised Abram in Genesis chapter 12, he says, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. We see this promise. We see God's plan, even in the Old Testament, extending way beyond the nation of Israel, way beyond just the people that he's caring for in Israel. And we should rejoice in that. We should rejoice in the fact that that even though Israel is the nation in whom God chose to make his name known, that he sent Jesus, that he's going to send Jesus who tore down the dividing wall of hostility and who adopted us into his family, us Gentiles, people who were not of the people of Israel, into his family. Praise God for his global mission in saving those without the correct pedigree and without the the correct family heritage, praise him that he is drawing people from all ends of the earth to himself. And I think it's interesting, even in this, that we see a sharp contrast between Naaman's belief, this belief that he has because of the grace of God that has been provided to him. We see that contrast between that and the apparent unbelief of Elisha's servant in the rest of the narrative. And so let's read 2 Kings chapter 5, uh, verse 20 through 27. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this name in the Syrian, in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me to say, There have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, Be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants. And they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house. And he sent the men away, and they departed. He went in and stood before his master, Elisha, and said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. But he said to him, Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money, garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper like snow. So Gehazi, the uh, Elisha's servant, sees this opportunity to, to exploit Naaman's generosity, to exploit the things that had gone on because Elisha, he sees that Elisha didn't take advantage of that. So he goes and and he lies about needing these goods for the sons of the prophets that are coming in. He lies to Naaman about that. He takes all of his goods. He takes some of the things that he has, and he tries to hide it from his master. He thinks Elisha will not know, but he does. But Elisha does know. He says, my spirit had gone out, and he knows what he's done. And so what we see here is that this man's dependence on his wealth has left him disease-ridden, And dying. He was left with a curse. He was left with the leprosy that came from Naaman because he trusted in his riches and because he wanted to seek after those riches more than he sought after the Lord. And this man, he's not in isolation. This is not isolated just to him. When we read through first and second Kings. Uh, I would encourage you to do that if you haven't done so. If, when we read through First and Second Kings, it's obvious that that Israel's heart, as a whole, had turned away from God, and that they had worshipped and served other things and other gods in His place. And because of this, God punishes His people. God punishes the people of Israel. And so, this is not a, an issue of Jew or Gentile. This is not an issue of the people of Israel versus the rest of the world. This is an issue of belief and unbelief. And so John the Baptist makes this this pretty clear in Matthew chapter 3, and he tells the Pharisees not to rely solely on their heritage, Abraham being their father. uh, Because God, he says God could raise up children of Abraham from the stones if he wanted to. God could literally raise up children from anywhere if He wanted. He chose the nation of Israel out of his sovereignty and out of his goodness, but He could raise up worshipers from Him from wherever He wants. And instead, we see through the Scripture that, that being of Christ's kingdom, that being, that being in the kingdom of heaven, in the kingdom of Christ, has nothing to do with your last name or with your heritage, but it has everything to do with your faith being founded in Christ. With your faith in Christ. And so for those in the Old Testament, they were believing God's promises of a Redeemer to come. They were believing that God was, true to, was going to be true to His promises and that everything that was prophesied would come to pass. And for those in the New Testament, we are looking back at the finished work of Jesus, and we're believing upon Him for salvation. And so I plead with you today, church, What do you place your hope in? What is your hope in today? Is it your family ties? Is it your last name? Is it the church that you attend? Is it the rituals that you perform on a weekly basis? Do you think that somehow those are going to save you, that those are going to bring life to you? Is it the quiet time that you have every morning? Do you, do you cling to that, and do you, do you think that that is something because of your good works and because of the things that you've, that you've done for Jesus that that somehow gives you any more merit than the next person? None of these things, none of these things that we can fabricate, no wealth, no security, no health, no goodness, none of these things have the power to save you. None of these things, the security that you have through your, your job or your 401k or your savings account is not going to give you the full security that you need. Only faith in Christ can do that. Is this something that you've been able to see through this pandemic? Is this something that uh, that you've been able to experience? I, I, I've been praying that God would, would shift our priorities individually and as a church to devote ourselves to him. I've been praying that that when we see what's going on and where and when things are stripped away from us, when things that that are, you know, common things that we're normally able to participate in, when we're not able to do those things anymore, I pray that we would trust in Christ. I pray that that would lead us to trusting in him through everything that we do. I know that through this coronavirus that some people's money has been taken away. Some people had that security of money, they had that little nest egg there, and that's starting to be ripped away from you because maybe you lost your job, or maybe you're not you're not a non-essential employee. Maybe some of your physical relationships that you relied on so heavily, people that people that you needed in your life to be able to continue and and make things work on a week-to-week basis. Maybe those people are being ripped away from you. Sure, you can talk to them, but you're not able to see them in person. And maybe some of your personal schedules and your lists and your tasks that make you feel accomplished on a day-to-day basis are being taken away. Maybe you're not able to fulfill your need for satisfaction and your need for completing things through that anymore. Maybe you're not able to, to pour yourself into that anymore because you don't really have anything to do on a daily basis. Maybe God's exposing that. Maybe God's showing you that, that you can't find hope in that, that you can't find any, any security or satisfaction in completing a checklist of things every week. I would pray that we wouldn't sink into a state of depression because of all these things, that we, wouldn't, that we wouldn't hurt deeply because of all these things, but that we would focus on our, our hearts, on the only one who can actually fulfill our deep desires, that can fulfill those desires that we have to be needed and to be wanted and to, and to complete things and to do things. I pray that we would focus on the, the only person who can give us true joy, and that's Jesus Christ. I pray that we would be awake in church, And let us join with the saints all around the world right now who are depending on Him through everything that life brings us, through everything that comes about. And I pray that we would lean on Him, that we would trust in Him. He is worthy of all of our praise because He did all the work for us for salvation. He is worthy of everything. And life in Him is what we truly need, not our schedules, not our wealth, not the things that we do on a weekly basis, but Jesus. We need Him today, so let us cling to Him. Let's pray. Father, we we ask that through this pandemic, that you would renew our hope. that you would refocus our efforts, that you would allow us to be able to see the faults in our ways. And that, Lord, ultimately, anything that we were depending on before this began, anything that we're depending on right now, uh, we ask that you would strip that away from us. God, we know it may hurt initially. But Lord, we ask that you would replace that with an understanding of what you've done for us, with a true dependence upon Jesus Christ, the hope of our salvation. Father, when when we're not making the money that we made before, when our job gets stripped away from us, when we're not able to see our families in the way that we were before, when things happen that cause us to need, Lord, would you be the one that we run to? Would you be the one that we fall on? because you are the only one who is actually there who can care for us, who can love us. Father, would you rid us of our pride of thinking that we've got things all together, that we've got it figured out, that we know what the answers are, that we have and others don't, Father, would that pride allow us, would you eliminate that pride to where we are only trusting in you, trusting in the hope that we have in you alone. Father, I thank you for your word today. I pray that you would bring about change in our lives through it, and that you would allow us uh, to be able to worship you well. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.